Hey man, thank you so much, Lindsay. Let's give the Lord a hand for that beautiful song. Surely the presence of the Lord is here and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and there is freedom. And uh, we know that as his people today. If you don't know that, uh, you can and are invited to uh, be renewed and refreshed in his spirit this morning. And I hope that you have a Bible. Uh, if you do, we're in Galatians 5. We're going to begin reading in verses 13 through 15. We'll be reading um, from several different verses in this chapter and in Galatians. So if you want to just keep your Bibles open to that, uh, to these pages, uh, we will find great use uh, from God's word and, and, and uh, hear some great things from God's word. Uh, you know, Sundays uh, it, uh, are kind of ordinary for us as Christians to gather in, together in the Lord's house. Um, it's just what we do. Uh, it, it, even if you don't uh, attend uh, every week, it's, you know that Sunday in, in our country and in, in our culture, Sunday is that day that you go and you worship the Lord. But days like today are extraordinary um, or extraordinary uh, opportunities for God's people to consider uh, what he has to say to us with a little bit more sensitive ears uh, and to pay attention with a little bit more focused sight uh, because I believe that there is a, an extraordinary blessing available for us on days like today. So if you found your place in your Bibles, Galatians 5, uh, we're jumping in midstream and we'll, we'll catch up with the context in a little while, but the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians, but I also think he writes to us because God's word's alive and what he wrote to them, he writes to us as well. So when he says you here, I want you to take this as to you because I believe it is to you and to me and to the one beside and in front and around you. For you, brethren, brothers and sisters, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For all the law, it's a big statement. All of the law is fulfilled in one word or in one phrase. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. We've gathered here today, hopefully well aware of our blessings as a people. I believe that today uh, it's right that we come together and worship and thank God for our blessings, don't you? I think that's what every American should be doing today. Uh, but I also think, I also think it's appropriate that we consider why he's giving us such blessings. And maybe you don't ask why in that way that often, but maybe it's a good day to ask, why has God been so good to us? Now, of course, God is a good father. He loves to give good things to his children. So we know that God gives because he loves. He does not give so that we will be guilt-ridden. He gives so that we might enjoy and understand that he sees us as his children. So no questions. God gives because God loves. That's what loving fathers do. The Bible is very clear on that, but it's also clear on something else, that not enough people have heard this or not enough people know that God is a good father that gives or wants to give good things to his children. Our God is the source of light and life and not enough people know that. Our God is the source of all that we have and all that we are and he deserves tremendous praise and glory for that. 
The Bible is the story of how he worked to remove darkness with his light, how he worked to overcome and replace death with his life. You all know this, but maybe you don't. The the Bible is the story of how God worked through one nation to bring a savior for all nations. He built his church to take this good news to the world. Part of his building his church has included blessing the nations and people which make up his church. So it's only right that we understand that God has given us these blessings so that we might praise him for them and serve him with them. In Galatians 5, 13 through 15, we hear the Apostle Paul refer to liberty that we have as Christians to live free from sin, free from death, and to truly get to enjoy life. Paul, hears the answer, Paul answers the question, why has God given us these blessings? So that we might fulfill his eternal plan, fulfill his law, fulfill his desire to bless all people through each and every one of us. Now, that might be with ease or it might at least be with assistance if we, filled with the Spirit of God, obey Him rather than obey our sinful flesh. Paul goes on to list what a life of Spirit-filled living looks like. If you look down at verse number 22 through 26, we've heard these verses before. You probably know many of these by heart. But Paul says, this is what it looks like to live in liberty, to live in the freedom that Christ gives us, to live apart from sin and a way way out of sin. This is what a life in the Spirit looks like. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, as in there's no limit to how much these things should be done or these attributes should be shared because these only make the world a better place. There doesn't need to be a limit put on these. If we can just hear for a few minutes today, these spiritual virtues are contrary to a life of self-indulgence and consumption as listed above. If we can just for a few minutes, I'd like to consider the vision that Paul is casting over the Galatian church and how what he was envisioning for them has brought us to where we are today and should be, remain our vision in the fu- for going forward for us in the future as well. Uh, in Galatians and really all the epistles that Paul writes, Paul is writing to these newfound, and I mean baby Christian communities uh, throughout the eastern half of the Roman Empire. If you look in the back of your Bibles, you'll see a map of Paul's missionary journeys. Most of the letters that Paul wrote uh, would, uh, would have been to churches in the modern day country of Turkey. So in the very eastern part of the Roman Empire, the very northern part of the Middle East, uh, it's remarkable how radically different these Christian sub-communities were when compared to the larger Roman society that they were a part of. Uh, it's most likely that we don't pick up on, and I want us to attempt to hear with the ears that they would have heard this stuff. And I know that's hard because it's remarkable how radically different what they were being instructed in how different that was to what the rest of the world was immersed in. And and it's most likely that we don't pick up on just how unnatural and just how brand new the things he was instructing them or leading them in. We read things that he condemns back in Galatians 5, 19 and 21. These things about lust and selfishness and consumption. We read what he endorses thereafter, promoting values that we consider the gold standard. We consider the American standard. Standard even. But I can't overstate this very truth. The values that he promotes, the lifestyles he endorses, and the ones that he condemns, 
These stood in stark contrast to what was accepted and what was considered normal. When Paul tells Christians to treat each other with respect, to ascribe value to everyone, to no longer see differences based on race, gender, class, or status. To us, this is just what we expect. It's what we feel should be the standard. But in those days, this was radical. Just to set the stage for you a little bit. When Paul tells husbands to love their wives, their one wife, by the way, like Christ loved the church and be willing to die for them. We say, of course, husbands should love their wives. Of course, husbands should only have one wife. But in those days, women were traded like products. They were commodities. When Paul tells wives to love their husbands, we say absolutely wives should love their husbands. But in those days, women had no emotional connection with their husbands. They, were, they, were, they never dreamed of having a choice in the matter of marriage. They never believed they would ever be able to trust men to actually love them and not just want to use them. When Paul tells masters to treat their employees or their slaves like people, like equals, we think it's insulting to even consider otherwise, but in those days, when a world, in a world where 20% of the population literally didn't just own the wealth, but owned the laborers, the majority of people were enslaved. They owned nothing, not even their homes, not their land, not even their own lives. Common men were sold and branded and left to die when they served no greater purpose. And if they ever crossed the line, they would be put to death. Of course, we think slavery is evil. It shouldn't exist. But in those days, just the notion that slaves weren't property was considered a joke. Of course, people could own other people. It just seemed natural to them. You see, what Paul is teaching and what the church was teaching, what Christianity was teaching, was so unnatural. It was not normal. It was radical and totally far into what had dominated the world for as long as anyone could remember. But to us... These things don't seem radical. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, these things don't seem wild. They seem mild compared to what we should do beyond those things. To us, things like love and value, as in people are valuable, people are worth something. Things like equality, things like freedom. To us, these are just starting points, aren't they? Through us, these are the things that we live from and engage others from. But to the world that was 2,000 years ago, these ideals were so abstract, they weren't even dreamt of because they were practically undefined and unknown. And the world that was, might made right. Those with the power made the rules, broke the rules, and overruled anybody that got in their way. There was no love. It was only lust. There was no instinctive value. There was no equality. There was no universal freedom. There was bondage and struggle. There was no wide open opportunity, just blind chance and mostly bad luck. The ancient world had saw different empires take turns running the show, but with each empire, it was the same song, second or third or fourth verse. Men of high status and power of whichever race, driven by lust, ruled the show. And when Rome took over, there was a feeling in the air that Rome would rule forever. If you were a Roman man born into a wealthy class, you may find good fortune. But if you were anybody else, you would be a piece of property at best. And at worst, you would be crucified. You could resist. You could riot. 
You could revolt, but there was always more with Rome than there was with you. This gave women and children no chance. And it gave men a very slight chance at making a difference with their lives. You could expect a life wherein you had three potential pathways that would forever define you. You would either be used, abused, or disposed. You pick. Can you imagine? Can you imagine growing up in a world where these things that seem so foreign to us were the reality in which everybody expected to always exist in? Where men saw women and children as lesser than? Where women saw men as to be feared and never trusted? Where children were not guaranteed that they would know what it was like to be nurtured and loved? Where rich regularly, consciously, and legally robbed from and oppressed the poor? Where the class you were born into was the class you would remain in, suffer in, and die in? These things seem like nightmares to us, but they were the corrosive standard that dominated the world 2,000 years ago. And if we raise up from our American safeguard, we would be aware that there are many people in the rest of the world that are still in this 2,000-year-old standard that we think is so far in, but the rest of the world, it hasn't gone away for them. Something in us says, no, that can't be. How could people accept these anti-virtues as natural or normal? How could people just accept life would always be that way? How could people not have a say? And you hear what Paul is saying in Galatians and the rest of the New Testament. You hear that Paul is preaching this new way that, yes, everyone should be loved and that everyone is loved. Yes, everyone is valuable. Everyone is equal. Everyone should be given freedom. And we hear Paul say these things and it's almost as if he's trying to charge up people for something to change. In many ways, what Paul and the church were spreading in the first century throughout the Roman Empire were the seeds of a revolution. Yet the church was so obscure, so connected to this ancient, in many ways, dead Jewish religion, nobody took them seriously. Yes, they would squash a little bit of a, a riot every once in a while, but they weren't worried about these Christians, these Christ followers ever making a difference on the world. Loving people, see how, that, how far that gets you. Treating people equally, see how far that gets you. Uh, you know, stooping down to the level of a, of a slave and treating them as if they're equal to you, see how far that gets you. Nobody's going to buy into that. This is Rome you're dealing with, after all. If you want to make it, you better bow down and worship us. Otherwise, you'll die like you are. So when the whispers of these little communities that were accepting and loving and empowering one another first began to circulate, people greatly underestimated the impact that would result. Wherein rich and poor worshiped together, where rich even helped the poor, wherein free and bound, master and slave came together equally, where masters began granting liberty to their slaves, enabling them to go farther, where men began loving their wives, denouncing polygamy, working with the church community to offer respite to women and help them heal and move forward. You could think, well, how, could, how in the world could they begin to do this? It began to dismantle the world that was one church at a time. Women and children became equals to men. Children became blessings, not burdens. Women were given a voice and no longer muzzled. Slowly but surely, and I mean slowly but surely, the church began changing the world from the ground up. But, but, they did not pick up a sword. 
even though they seem prime for rebellion. Through love and through service, through establishing communities that drew people in, integrating themselves into society in ways that turned people's heads. Over the course of 300 years, the church changed the world, not with weapons, but with worship and with love. By uniting together around a God who loved, valued, and empowered all people who provided justice for those that were done wrong and gave righteousness to prevent things from being done wrong. By truth and grace, Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, the West was won for his kingdom. No, not all evil was banished. No, not all sin was denounced. No, not every individual became immediately immersed in virtues of love and equality, freedom and opportunity. But over time, over time, These ideals became so present and so promoted, they began to permeate the West's conscience. It took a thousand years or more, but the church continued to love and and, and treat people as equals. They began to put freedom as something that everyone deserved. The church began to continue to serve one another. And every time they took a little bit step to the wrong direction, the church would double down on what would make a difference. And slowly but surely, these ideals began to sink into the conscience of the world. Over time, across decades and centuries and millennia, These truths, it's almost crazy how it happened. These truths became self-evident. As in they were things that people just expected. Love, value, equality, freedom, of course. Those are natural. Of course, those should be normal. But they weren't normal when they were first preached. They weren't normal for a long, long time. But now, they seem as if They are, don't they? There's something in us that says, yes, everyone should be loved. Yes, everyone's valuable. Yes, there is equality for all people. Yes, we should all be free. How in the world can that regime still be in power? How in the world can that government do what they do to its people? How in the world is it like that over there? Because it's not like that over here. We expect these things now, don't we? And even though everyone didn't receive or benefit from them immediately in this fallen world, that will never be the case. These ideals would become a blanket for the world that even though those who hadn't or didn't experience them, they would know of them, they would long for them because they could see them on the horizon. As the church community spread from the outskirts of town to town squares, as the gospel of Jesus became better known than the stories of kings or dukes or lords, as the family of God and the story of God's people became more frequently told than the history of nations or regimes, these Christian ideals became the gold standard by which the world expected to be judged and to be ruled. These ideals would go on to seem normal and natural, to seem instinctive that so much, in some cases, the cart has bypassed the horse. Many people do not know Jesus or his gospel, yet they know the values that would not be present if not for him. Maybe this answers some questions you have about the world today. Because many people know of love and value and equality and freedom, and they feel like they should be given them. They feel like that's what should be normal or natural, yet they haven't heard of Jesus. And that's because these principles that he established have so baptized the world because the church took him to the ends of the earth. Here in Galatians, Paul is laying one of the earliest blocks in the foundation of this new world order. 
which grew into the house that we dwell in today. The canopy that encompasses and shades the entire world began as the smallest of seeds. And and, and by no means, I don't think Paul could have ever imagined what it would turn into. But Jesus, of course, predicted this. Nobody took him seriously, but in Matthew 13, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And those birds don't know the story of the seed. Not all of them do. But the tree has grown so big that the world has been changed by it. In Galatians, Paul is seeking to encourage early believers to embrace the spiritual freedom that Christ gave to all of his own. The hopes would be that this spiritual freedom would lead to physical change and literal changes in the world. In Galatians, you'll notice that Paul talks about the difference between spirit and law, faith and religion a lot. Paul is trying to establish Christianity in the church on the work of Christ alone, separating it from legalism and the system of religious works. And this is important for us to understand today because Paul was trying to chart the church's direction as it moved forward. You see, the distinction that Paul makes is that religion looks for excuses and exceptions to justify wrong. Religion is always wanting to know how far it can go, how much it can do, how close it can get to still be okay or to get by with as much as it can. Religion is always looking for excuses and exceptions to justify itself, but faith, faith is different. Faith looks to go above and beyond what is justifiable and aims to do what is just. See the difference? See, your kids ask you all the time when they're little, hey, can I, get, can I get by with this? Or can I do this? Or is this okay? Or is that okay? And when you're not looking, they try to do what they can to, to get by with it, but not get your attention. That's what religion is. Religion is our conscience's way of trying to justify itself. But faith is better. Faith is about, you know what? I know I might could get by with that, but I want to do what is right and just because it's more than just me in the house. Listen to what Paul said back at the beginning of this chapter. He reiterates some things that we just read, but back in Galatians 5, 1 through 6, listen to Paul define or talk about Christian liberty. You'll hear him use the word circumcision. He's using that as kind of a blanket word or as, as, a, as a word for religion because circumcision was the Jewish right to join that religion. And that was the way of saying, well, I've done these things and that's my way of justifying myself. So here that is a, a word for works, a word for religion. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which you, Christ has made you free, and do not be entangled with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised or begin going by the religious way, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law, or as in it's something that we have to do. You have become estranged from Christ, you have attempted to justify by the law, and you've fallen from grace." For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, this is a big statement, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision or none of the religious things, none of the things that we do for ceremony's sake, none of that matters or the only thing that does matter is faith working through love. That's what Paul says should define the Christian community, should define the church. So Paul, again, talks about accepting circumcision. He's referring to Christians, referring to legalism, which would only stifle the true spirit of the church. The true spirit of the church, which had the potential to change the world. You see, religion may seem like a pathway to justify one person, 
but it's not a viable pathways for all people. And truth be told, religion only offers a mere illusion to a better life. Christianity only offers the true solution. So Paul is thinking big picture. He's thinking about, hey, how can the church make an impact on its world? Well, it's gonna do so through love that God has given them. We've gotta go and show the world that same love. We've gotta serve each other. We've got to work out our salvation for the good of our brother and sister. The values God has given us, the things he's given us spiritually, we need to establish in a literal way. We need to bring justice and righteousness to make that what is expected in the world. We need to plow down and knock down these fruits and lifestyles of the flesh and replace them with that of the spirit. And that's the only way we're gonna make a difference. And people would say, Paul, do you know who's in charge? Do you know what people do, that, 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 what the pagans do? Do you really think us little small Christians are gonna make that kind of an impact? You see, Paul's thinking big picture. Not just what will save us, but what could save the world. He's thinking about God's eschatological plan, which eschatological is God's plan for the end of time or plans for the fullness of time. He's thinking about God's long-term plan to establish his kingdom one salvation at a time. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Of course, we'll never perfect things here on earth, but we set in motion a preview of, of what's to come. And that's why Paul is urging the Galatians to disregard the traditions of religion, to disregard the cultural norms, not settle for what's justifiable, but strive for what is just, not just for us, but what is just for all. Faith working itself through love, if we who have encountered and experienced Christ would work out our faith in love for him and each other, what a difference we could make, what a different world we could build. Paul admonishes us that have been given the gift that others dream of yet may not realize they can receive. Something that Paul does here is so important. And here's where, we go, here's where we're going with this. Paul fans the flame of our freedom unto accountability unto opportunity, even obligation. The freedom we've been given in Christ from sin, from bondage, from wastefulness, from emptiness, becoming aware of his love for us, his instilling value in us, his choosing us, his empowering us, as normal as that may be for us in a Christian community under Christian influence, it is not normal, it is not natural. We must always remember and understand and feel the weight that comes along with that. Now, I think Paul would even say the Galatians were a long way. They were a long way away from this being something they took for granted. Paul knew that to take on Rome, to take on the world, to take, change the world would take daily concentrated efforts to make the most of freedom, to accomplish the most for the kingdom. And that's why he says in verses 13 through 15 that we must, through love, serve one another, that liberty is an opportunity to fulfill God's word in full, not that we would bite and devour each other and tear each other down and be divisive until our death. No, we can do better, Paul says. The Christians in Galatia said, Paul, where do we start? I mean, there's just five or six of us and there's a whole world out there. Nobody's gonna take this serious. Would it be easy? Of course not. 
Would they feel as if they were being taken advantage of some days? Of course they would. Would they be overran some days? Of course they would. Would they they be left behind some days? Absolutely they would. But Paul, over in chapter 6, encourages them with some really really powerful words. Look over at chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. Sometimes we we hear these verses as if they're a threat, but they're really a promise. Because Paul's whole message has been live by the Spirit, work out your faith through love, use your liberty as an opportunity. So with all that in mind, listen to what Paul says to close this book out. Let him who is taught in the word share in all things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Now we hear that kind of in a threatening tone, but this is what Paul is saying. If we do what we have been called to do, if we use our freedom as an opportunity, if we through love serve one another, if we choose the spirit and not the flesh, God is not mocked. If we sow to the spirit, we will reap everlasting life. If we go the way of Rome and do the way that things have always been done, of course we won't make a difference. But if we by the spirit sow through the spirit we will make a difference I know that does not seem like something that's likely I know as you're losing your lives you're losing your families it does not seem like it's a realistic plan but I promise you God is not mocked verse 9 let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart I mean, you know, a season for us is a week, a month, and I'm giving up. It was a lot longer for them. Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. Let's especially build a community that is loving, accepting, and empowering, but let us not remain in the community. Let us go to the world, and it may cost us, and it did cost them. I got to tell you, if we were to go back to those scattered churches of Galatia, if we were to travel back in time to the Christians gathered in the shadow of Rome, underground in the forest and caves, if we were to tell them 2,000 years from now that things that they heard and received with joy, the things that their world rejected, that 2,000 years from now, those things would be normal and natural and expected. The things that would eventually cause Rome to enact aggressive persecution for 200 years. Christians systematically hunted and tortured for sport. Yet they continued to be a force for good. They labored together through love. It cost them their lives again and again. If we were to tell them that one day the things they died for, the things that Christ died to give them, the things their world laughed at and worked against, one day they would be accepted and celebrated and even expected. Would they believe us? I mean, the Galatian church heard Paul say, in due season, we will reap a harvest. They died not reaping the harvest. Let me just tell you, 200 years later, they hadn't reaped the harvest. Hundreds of years later, they hadn't reaped the harvest. But in due time, the kingdom of God was built one block at a time. But, all, but along the way, there were gladiator games. Christians fed the lion, systematically beheaded and tortured for sport. 
when the plagues would take over the Roman Empire, when all the pagan priests would abandon the cities and all the doctors would leave, Christians would go back into town and nurse people back to hell, losing their own lives. When little girls were abandoned by the rivers for the wolves to eat, it was Christians that went and took them in and adopted them. When women were considered no longer useful to men, it was the church that took these women in and gave them a voice and gave them a purpose and showed them love they had never seen before. What if we were to go back and we were to take our declaration of independence with us and say, one day, a group of men representing colonies that spread the coast of a continent you're not even aware of. One day, a group of men will pin these words and listen to how they'll say it. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Would they believe that was a real document written by real people? Self-evident? Endowed by their creator? I mean, we believe that as Christians, but the world doesn't. Nobody even expects that they're worthy of anything. They're treated as if they're just in the way. What if we were to show them this last part, the last line that nobody ever reads? Would they believe us? For the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives and our fortunes. You know what that says? This is people saying, we are pledging to each other that we will die for each other if necessary and we will support each other if necessary. Woo, you know, that's a little bit out of our league, right? Or a little bit out of what we think it's all about. But this is what they wrote as if they were led by God and we believe they were led by God because they felt this was the right thing to do. Are you kidding? They would ask us. These things are brand new. They're not of man they're of God to y'all to your generation it's self-evident to your generation it's expected worth fighting for your freedom over like who, who in the world expects this pledging yourself to each other I mean who are y'all they would never imagine that these values would become household ideals for even those who have heard, never heard of Jesus. Think about it. If we were to go back to the families that watched their loved ones torn apart in the Colosseums, if we were to go back to those that were the slaves that had to clean up the remains of Christians after the gladiator events, if we were to tell them that one day love, value, equality, freedom are Christian core ideals, brand new in the first century, that one day these would be the standard and expectations of all people in the modern world. They would say, I don't know who you are, I don't know where you're from, but this world will never escape Rome. Those Christians and their values will never become normalized and embraced. It sounds too good to be true. And yet, here we are. Far from perfect, far from harmonious, far from where heaven and our future kingdom will take us. But we indeed can say without batting an eye, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Love, equality, freedom, and value, they should be given to all people. 
These ideals have so permeated our world that our national conscience was forged and upheld by these Christian values. Over time, things, should, things that should have never been missing at our origin were set in place by this conscience. Whether it was equality across gender or race, mercy and an extended hand to those in need. Over time, this conscience informed us again and again, and it still does. Have we always gotten it right? No. Have we taken things in directions that aren't in line with God's word? Uh, yes. But again, I think it's just a sign of our yet imperfect state. And, and sometimes Christians, we miss the forest for the trees. We get worked up because America might be going in the wrong direction, yet we forget that we are here because we came through God's right direction. America has been the voice in the world's head for half a century, reminding it that the values embedded in our country should be poured into every country. And, when we've, and we've worked hard to spread these to as many as possible. And another thing, America isn't our destination. Our temporary dwelling place where we have the privilege to further enact and enable these Christian values. So of course things aren't perfect. We wait until kingdom come. And one day it will come. And the question will be, how did we contribute to its rise? Who did we invite and assist in to its glory? What did we do with the blessing that very few other people ever got to enjoy? You know, I think the greatest part of being an American can also be the most tempting and detrimental part about being an American. We have it so good. We've had it so good for so long. It's easy to believe that it's always been this way for all people in all places throughout all time. But as we've learned today, that's not the case. Jesus spoke to his generation about the stumbling blocks of their time concerning possessions and blessings. Relative to ours, theirs would seem pretty small. But in those days, people dreamed of having just an ounce of what we don't even register as a blessing we waste without a blink of an eye what they wanted so badly and I don't mean stuff always but values and ideals that we don't cherish but we should I want you to hear Jesus's words on this subject and imagine if it was convicting to his generation imagine how it should land for us Jesus said take care and be on guard against all covetous for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions he told a parable that the land of a rich man produced plentifully. He brought, thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I've got a first world problem in the ancient world. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And everybody in the crowd that day is shaking their heads saying, well, of course you would do this if you were a rich man. Because you're blessed by God. And why wouldn't you take, build bigger barns? And why wouldn't you store all your stuff up? And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And of course, why wouldn't you do this? Who could blame him? Those blessings don't require anything of him more than others, does it? It's not how it works, is it? But God said, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus says, so, or likewise is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And rich toward God means using the blessings that we've been given for something else, for something beyond us. 
This correlates to what Paul is telling the Galatians about because whereas religion was concerned about self against others, a relationship with God is aware of how our lives relate to each other. Today is a reminder of how blessed we are, how obliged we are. We can choose folly like the rich fool or we can choose glory. Glory that may not register on the world's charge. Glory that may cost us more than it makes us. Glory that is not proud but humble, that serves and that is courageous and that loves. You know, many refer to being America, being an American as making us exceptional. This exceptionalism can often make us blind to the history that brought us here and the opportunity that we have now that we're here. American exceptionalism may just be propaganda, but the opportunity for us to be something beyond exceptional is right in front of us. There is a temptation to ignore this extraordinary opportunity and bask in our exceptionalism. And who could blame us? Nobody's ever had it this good. Nobody's ever been able to expect love and value and freedom and opportunity. But I don't think we can settle for that, can we? I don't think you wanna settle for that. Deep down having to come to terms with what is now self-evident, we too feel the same pressure and motivation the founding fathers felt to obey the moment of prudence that weighs on our shoulders, to do what is right, to do what is just, to do what is eternally beneficial. We can't settle for exceptionalism for the same reason that those who've made a difference in our country did not and could not. Being an American is an extraordinary opportunity and a blessing that more haven't been able to enjoy than have. We could fill up our barns with all of the blessings that we are given as Americans or we could do something different. You know, there are 332 million Americans. Seems like a lot of people that get to be Americans, doesn't it? I mean, we should, should I feel really responsible if there are that many other people that get to walk in my shoes? 300 million, that's a lot of people. It seems like the odds are pretty high for people to get to be just like me. If they just work hard enough, they'll get there. But if you consider there are 7.8 billion people in the world, I know numbers this big just make our eyes glaze over, but let's look at all the zeros. 332 million out of 700, 700 or 7.8 billion. We're just 4% of the world. Just 4%. Just 4% of the people on this planet get to call themselves Americans. 96% don't and probably will never know what we know. If a small portion of that 96% doesn't need know, it's because America has promoted and protected these otherwise foreign concepts of love, value, and equality and freedom and have shared with them what we've been given. These truths will, we hold to be self-evident are not so self-evident to the rest of the world. We are fortunate benefactors of the church of Jesus Christ that has spanned generations, continents, and countries. As God has guided his eternal plan throughout time, America was and is the result of all these ideals becoming household virtues through a very specific pathway. We just so happen to be able to enjoy these spools and blessings of a path that took these truths from, mid, from the Middle East to Western Europe and across the sea. 
In that same passage in Luke 12, Jesus says this regarding those who find themselves in such positions as us, which far exceed those that the generation he addressed ever arrived at. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And of course, Peter, always the right guy with the right question, said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? I mean, there's not many rich men in big barns with big barn syndrome in our world. I mean, who are you telling this for? And I think, I don't know. Jesus looks into the future and he sees that city on a hill called America. And he sees how blessed and how fortunate and how privileged and how self-evident these values and virtues have become. And he says, the Lord said, who then is a faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their proper food, portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And what does it mean so doing? And then he signs off with this. Everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We stand here at the gates, even the threshold of the kingdom of God. We've seen its values and ideals become realized in ways that Paul and the early church never wrapped their dreams around. Today, we celebrate our country and its blessings, yet we remember the kingdom and our responsibility. We rightly give God praise and we rightly are thankful, but we also feel responsible. What we do with this extraordinary gift of freedom has the potential to change the course of history. Just ask those who came before us, just look around us. May we consider these words from Jesus. May we hear these words of Paul once more. Galatians 5 verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but as an opportunity through love to serve one another, fulfilling the law in one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, beware lest you be consumed by each other. Church, love, equality, value, and freedom, these truths, these values, they are not of this world. They are of God. They are from Christ, and his spirit gives us an, a life in light of these. Today, we praise him, but we also ask why, and I think we've heard why. Only in America do we so clearly know all these extraordinary blessings. And God continues to give them so graciously and abundantly. Only in America do we so clearly know these extraordinary blessings, but only in America do we get to live and walk under the extraordinary responsibility that they leave us with. Would you want it any other way? Of course not. You have the chance to change the world. Do not get weary in your well-doing. In due time, maybe over the course of 2,000 years, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. But meanwhile, as we wait for the doors to open, we know that to whom much is given, much is required. So I ask you this morning, 
First of all, have you said thanks? Have you lived a life of worship to God for the extraordinary blessings he's given you? If not, I mean, get the negativity, get the bitterness, get the if not and the why not and the complaints out of your system because you are so blessed as an American. And I hear you, not everybody's going through an easy time right now, but as an American, today we realize how blessed we are. Have you said thank you to God? Have you lived a life that shows you're thankful? And beyond that, do you live a life with responsibility, knowing that the blessings you've been given, they have a purpose, an opportunity for you to use your liberty through love, serve each and every one another. God has been so good to his church. Let's make the most of this extraordinary blessings of this extraordinary opportunity on this extraordinary day in the most extraordinary country on the face of the earth. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this extraordinary gift. Thank you for our country. Thank you for the pathway that brought us here. Thank you that you so changed the world that here we are 2,000 years later and things that were radical and foreign to those in the early Roman Empire, today we expect them. We expect to be loved. We expect to be free. We expect to be valued. We expect to be equal with each other because that's how powerful your truths have been on the world and of course we have we should repent of our sin as a nation we've went in the wrong directions but we have been so blessed and as Christians we we have an opportunity to make a difference with our lives Lord thank you for freedom thank you for those that fought for us to give us this freedom but thank you also for this opportunity and this responsibility and help us make the most of it. God forbid we waste it. Lord, we thank you so much. We give you this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.